Okay, so out of much metta and compassion for myself, um, I've examined my mental state and uh, I'm pretty tired. So, <laughs> so um, I'm going to invoke, there's no way I'm going to answer all these questions today. Um, in the past, we kind of have this battle. There's always more questions than time. And there's this battle of people who want to have time to meditate or the people who want to have two hours of Q&A. <laughs> so I always go with the, except for this retreat, this has been interesting because Bhante Sila let it go, so I figured I'd let it go too. <clears throat> but I usually side on the, the, the side of the people who want to meditate. Um, and since we have way more questions than I'm going to fit in an hour, I'll just... Uh, go through the questions. I'll be a little bit more selective of, of the questions that we can answer. And then uh, we'll end. I have two things regarding questions. The first is the answer to all your questions is the practice will answer your questions for you. <laughs> that's the first thing. And also, um, if I don't get to your question and it's something that's really burning, you can ask one of us at the end of the retreat or you can email one of us, like Bhante Sila, myself, all that information will be on the board. So you can always, uh, you know, ask it later if it doesn't get asked here. <clears throat> Keeping in mind the time limitations that lay people have, how can we best prepare ourselves physically and mentally for the next retreat? Keep practicing. Just make it... Retreats, retreats are very good things. But the most important thing is making it a consistent part of your life, making it your livelihood. That counts for every, that counts for the whole practice itself, not just metta. <clears throat> and when you do that, then, you know, you build that up. So when you go to a retreat, no matter how long, you know, a retreat is always going to be tougher. It's always going to be longer, harder. It's, it's a test. In, in many ways because right? you know most people don't meditate more than an hour a day and I know I didn't when I was in lay life I would meditate pretty much about 45 to an hour in the morning I was always too tired at night so the morning was my time to meditate um, and so you're going from an hour or maybe more to six hours right <clears throat> and so you have um, you know the, all everything that sitting down on a cushion does ramps up when you do it longer so I would also um, recommend lots of ab exercises <laughs> it's it's not a it's it's a joke but it's also not because really if you're in the correct posture what's keeping you up are your abs like what I've noticed is that especially off long periods of time what will happen is, if I'm keeping the correct posture, about day three or four, my abs literally can't keep my upper body up anymore. They just start going like this. Because they're just, they, they're out of whatever. They're not strong enough to do it. <clears throat> so, you know, doing yoga and things like that, keeping up physically, and also during the retreat. So mentally, I think the important thing is to go into a retreat knowing that it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be brutal. It's going to test you. 
right? You either, you're going to see the I don't want a part of your mind a lot more than normal. I don't want to sit here. I want to go outside or I want to go back to my room, all of these things. And so part of being in a retreat is learning to, learning to work against that too. Learning to say, okay, no, you know, I'm here. I'm going to meditate. So, you know, in the beginning, it's very important to, to err on the side of having compassion for yourself and kindness for yourself in your practice. But after a time, um, you get to understand and you get to become wiser. There's times where you're going to have to push yourself. And there's times when you have to l let yourself rest and times when you have to let yourself, you know, you can let yourself off the hook a little bit. But then there's times you have to push yourself. Um, in the beginning, you, it's harder to harder to know when that right time is because if you push your if you push yourself in an unwise way, you're going to hurt yourself mentally or physically. How can journaling enhance our practice? Um, you know, journaling is an interesting thing. I've all, I've tried to do journaling for years. The only times I've ever consistently journaled were a when I was on a retreat here, or b when I'm traveling. I always just like when I try to journal, you know, during regular life, it just it never lasts. I'll do it for like a couple days, and then it just get feels boring. But um, what I found important for journaling is writing it down helps me codify my thoughts, helps me codify my my experience. <clears throat> and like I said, I have you know every every year we have a, a seclusion period. Like for a month, we can basically just you know, be off and just do whatever. Some people go home or whatever. I, you know, I like to try to just totally disconnect and just be by myself for a whole month. And during that time, one of the things I do is I read my old meditation journals and I see, like, you know, Bhante Sila said this on this day and all these kind of things, right? And I read it and I, it makes me, allows me to see how far I've come. And it reminds me of things that I've lost that were, that were helpful to me in the past. So I think if, if you can make it a consistent practice, do it. I think it's extremely helpful. Bonte, what are your thoughts on being a vegetarian? I'm not and feel really bad. I also know friends who are vegetarian but treat their pet in home badly, or pet at home badly. <coughs> I'm a little confused, please explain. My thoughts on being vegetarian match the Buddhist thoughts on being vegetarian. I leave it up to each individual person to decide that. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily for or against it. Um, I wasn't a vegetarian, uh, and, you know, before I became a monk. Now that I live here, I'm vegetarian. But wherever I go is what I eat. People ask me, you know, what, do you have any special things? There's, I have a few special things because of my weight loss surgery, but in general, I just say, whatever you eat is what I'll eat. So I'll eat meat, I'll eat vegan, vegetarian, eating gluten-free. I've eaten gluten-free many times. I had a coworker who I worked very close with who was celiac. So um, you know, every time we were out, she had to have, bring her own food and things like that. And then I would try the, the gluten-free. It's like, oh, it's not too bad. So I've pretty much had everything. I'm not a... Um, I'm not too worried per se. I'm not too attached to what I eat um, in that regard. But 
That's up to you. So I, I would say that if you feel it's part of your practice, if you feel that it would be beneficial to your practice, then do it. Um, what I would really be wary of is the tendency where anybody who kind of does something um, like this, that you can fall into the whole moral superiority trap. Like, I'm a vegetarian. How can, how can people who aren't vegetarians be Buddhists and all these kind of things? Watch your mind with regard to that. Right? Just worry about your own practice and your own, you know, what you do. Even says on in the, the Sangha Hall, there's one of my favorite quotes from the Buddha. It says, don't look at what other people have done and not done. Look at your own um, actions, what you've done and what you haven't done. So what I would say is if, it, if this feels like it's something that you feel like you have to do for your own practice, then do it. Vegetarianism was as um, divisive almost 3,000 years ago as it is today. One of the, uh, those of you who may know Devadatta, Devadatta is I think the, a cousin of the Buddha and he was like the Buddha's enemy. He's always trying to kill the Buddha and make things bad for the Buddha and things like that. And he tried to cause a schism in the Sangha by getting the Buddha to force the monks to follow 13 uh, ascetic rules, one of which was vegetarianism. And that's where the Buddha says that these are, you know, I will not force any of these rules on the disciples. If they wish to take them on, then you can. One of them is uh, pretty much the only Dutanga rule that I do is mixing everything in the bowl together. So that's a, that's a fun one too. I would highly, especially if you have, uh, you know, food related defilements, mix everything in a bowl together. It's not as disgusting as you might think. It actually pretty, tastes pretty good. <clears throat> okay. Please repeat words for four directions. Front, right, back, left. Oh, oh. Mm. This is the one where Bhante Sila does the different ones. May I be free? Maybe it's, may I be free from anger? May I be free, free from hatred? Jealousy. Yeah. I, I would ask Bonte Seal. Oh, you can't ask Bonte Seal this tomorrow. Because <laughs> Bonte Seal is not going to be here after breakfast. Um, or you can email him that. But I, I, don't rem I don't know those words. Bonte, I have intentionally killed conscious beings before. Am I doomed? <laughs> Welcome to Sangsara. <clears throat> See, this is this is the thing. People people don't they have a hard time thinking outside of this one life, right? If you know, if you know, Sangsara and the rebirth and all that stuff is actually true, then you can understand that. Well, you've done. You've been Hitler in a past life. You've been Mother Teresa in a past life. You've done the most evil things. You've done the best things. <clears throat> the Buddha says that. Um, well, there's uh, two suttas. One of them is, you know, he, he asked the the monks, which is greater, the. Uh, oh no, no, I'm sorry. This is so. He says, greater than the water and all the great oceans is the amount of tears that you've cried throughout samsara for the loss of 
loved ones. Right? Then there's another one that says, greater than all of the water and all the great oceans is the amount of blood you spilled by cutting off people's heads. Right? So, no, you're not doomed. <coughs> We've all been there. Um, it, you know, it's not good karma, obviously, but, um, you know, the more you, if you do lots of good, good, good karma, then there's a simile also. It's like the simile of uh, the salt. So if you try to put salt in a, a glass of water, does that ruin the water? Does it make it really salty? Yes. But if tr you try to put salt in the Ganges, does that make the Ganges salty? No. It's because of the volume of water. So the more good deeds you do, <coughs> the more you are less likely to <coughs> set the groundwork for you know, the, your uh, negative karma in the past to arise and to ripen in, the, in your future. And also, of course, there's one of my favorite suttas, one of my favorite people, Angulimala. Angulimala is the Buddhist serial killer. So he, you know, the story goes, there's a couple different versions of the story. But basically he was, <coughs> Angulimala means this. Anguli means finger. Mala is what you wear around your neck. So he had a garland of, of fingers. Each time he killed a person, he took the finger. <coughs> and the tradition is that this was his teacher, his master was jealous of how, you know, righteous and good that this person was, that he he told the, him to go and bring me back a thousand fingers. So he went and he became a serial killer, which is, you know, kind of weird if you're like this wonderful person and you, just because the teacher says so, you go out and start killing people. But anyway, <clears throat> so the, the story is the, you know, he finally meets the Buddha. And there's this funny thing where like supposedly Angulimala is trying to chase the Buddha, but he's like, it's almost like he's running in place, he can't move. And he tells the Buddha to stop. And the Buddha turns around to him and says, Angulimala, I have stopped. You stop. What he was talking about, he has stopped samsara. He has stopped greed, hatred, and delusion. He stopped all of that. And so he basically convinced Angulimala um, to stop. Angulimala became a, an arahant, uh, became a monk, and then became an arahant. But even after he was an arahant, they, people still knew who he was. So he would go through the city and, and he, you know, like very nice and calm and arhant trying to get, you know, alms for the day. People would throw rocks at him and things like that. And so even as an arhant, there's still some conditions that you might have to endure um, while you're in that last body. <clears throat> so there's never, there's never, um, you're never lost. There's no such thing as damned in Buddhism. Even the hell realms and the heaven realms in Buddhism, it's all impermanent. You might go there for a couple of eons, but you move on. <laughs> no, true. Yeah. You move on after that. You, you get, you know, th those, that's all like spontaneous birth stuff. Then you uh, move on to your next birth after that. How does one become a monk or nun in the Theravada tradition? Is it common to be rejected? Why would someone be rejected in the process? A couple of reasons. Um, if you have debt... Uh, if you have some heavy-duty uh, mental or medical health stuff that you know, would require lots of medication and lots of um, things like that. <clears throat> Although I would say that this is, I'm speaking mostly from the West. 
you can go to you know Sri Lanka or or Thailand or whatever, and because there's because there's so much support that a lot of this probably wouldn't necessarily affect you becoming a monastic out there. Um, the debt thing would. Uh, you have to be a human. Um, yeah, it's true. One of the one of the Naga beings, the Nagas are like these dragons that could shape shift into humans, and the Naga wanted to become a and renunciate so he tried he became a human but they found out so that's literally <clears throat> when you're sitting there and you're about to be ordained they will ask you are you a human and yes yeah. and you say yes I'm a human <clears throat> so these kind of things there's a, a you know a variety of different um, things like you can't have any depend anybody that's depending on you um, you know, you, you can't, you can't have, you can't be like wanted for a crime. You can't, um, if you owe like government service or anything, you can't become a monk. You know, all these kind of things that like you could try to, you know, people would try to escape something to go to, um, you know, to, to escape something in life and become a monk. <coughs> there's a funny, there's a funny rule that monks aren't even allowed to um, bypass toll collectors. Right, so like you can't like there's a rule about um, monks kind of like because obviously they don't carry money if they're walking down the thing and the the kingdom has tolls or whatever, you know you you can't skirt the tolls. You somebody would have to support you to pay the tolls and things like that. <coughs> so in terms of ordination, if if you wanted to, you could pretty much get off the the plane in Thailand and become a monastic by the end of the day. Uh, it doesn't take a lot. It's not a big, long process. Um, I mean, the, you could do the ceremony in about 20 minutes, and you're a monastic. <clears throat> That's a common thing in Buddhist countries. Like, men become monks for a time so that they can be viewed as suitable to be a, a married person. Right? Women look at the guys in Thailand as like, were you a monk for a couple of months? And supposedly that helps, like, you know, that you, supposedly that will be a desirable thing that they've practiced some discipline or something like that. <clears throat> now, here in the West, it's usually a two-year process. And uh, it usually starts out with you going and living in a place for, like, six months. Then you become an Anagarika, like I was explaining who lives, you know, who's in white, um, an eight-precept person. You uh, and then after that you become a Samanera, like Samanera Karuna, which is a ten precept. Samanera Karuna is not technically considered to be. Um, he's a, considered to be a monastic, but he's not a fully ordained monastic. Like technically, you don't call Samaneras uh, bantes, but it's just normal, you know. And because he looks like us, everybody just calls us, you know, bantes. Um, so, <clears throat> but so that's the difference. See, the the Samanera doesn't follow the full Padimoka, the full 227 rules, and then um, and then after that you become uh, a bhikkhu, and so it takes about two years. The first step is to find a place that's willing to ordain you and really kind of try to become, you know, become known in this place. This is what I did here, that, and that was the advice that when I would ask monks. That's what they would say. Find a place that you know that you can go to often in your lay life, and they get to know you. <coughs> like they, you know, I took the eight lifetime precepts, and I got my name, and then they called me by my name, and all the time, and so that's how they they got to know me. 
And then when I came to to live here and put my application in, I didn't even need the references because they knew me for three years, right? So, are seeing lights and other visual hallucinations <coughs> an absolute prerequisite for deeper, lo deeper levels of concentration, or do they never appear for some people? <coughs> So I assume what you're talking about is like a nimitta, <clears throat> because people can have all kinds of visual hallucinations and lights and things while they're meditating, <clears throat> no matter what le you know level of concentration they're at. But uh, from what I understand, nimittas, <clears throat> which is nimitta, just means a sign. So nimitta, like samadhi nimitta, is the sign of concentration, <clears throat> and that's usually the sign that meaning that you're getting close to jhana or you know samadhi a deep level of concentration but what I've been uh, from what I understand it's not always there it's not something that everybody experiences so you could probably go into jhana and you never saw a nimitta so I, I wouldn't say it's a prerequisite how significant is the order of the eightfold path is it followed sequentially or simultaneously or back and forth it's sim it's followed simultaneously. You know, you see we don't have one. I wish we did have one in here. <clears throat> but you can see the, the Dhamma wheel, the Dhamma Chaka with the eight spokes. Right? There are all, all the eight spokes come together in the middle and it's all rolling together. They all support each other. They support the wheel. <clears throat> so you you know, you practice this um, you know, you practice these simultaneously. So you, you can, it's easier to think about when you think about sila, samadhi, and panya. Those are the three things. You're practicing your sila, living by virtuous principles, following the precepts. At the same time, you're practicing meditation and working with your mind. <clears throat> and at the same time, as you're doing that, you're coming closer and closer to right intention and, and right, uh, right understanding. Usually, the, you, in the suttas, it does say right view is essentially the forerunner. Right view is kind of like right view, right mindfulness, and right effort are the ones that are considered to be the most important, per se. Um, <clears throat> so you kind of, I would say, you probably have to have a, even, a little bit of right view to even want to start doing the noble full path. But the, the culmination of right view is seeing the, the Four Noble Truths with your own experience. And you see that when you become an awakened being. So the culmination of right view is is, is awakening. <clears throat> it has been fascinating to see the differences of opinion between you and Bhante's G... Oh, GNS, on meditation practice. Is it normal to have so much diversity of opinion in a single monastery? Um... <clears throat> Well, some places you'd only hear from the mo from the abbot or the most senior monastic, so you wouldn't have any <laughs> diversity of opinion. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know how normal it is per se, um, but I what I will also say is like some places, like you see a lot in some traditions, 
um, especially those who don't really use the suttas as their basis, you'll see like, my teacher said this or my teacher said that. Like they don't really have much to say other than this is what the teacher says. Um, <coughs> so since we, the, the one thing that we do have in common here is that we follow the suttas. <coughs> but the differences of opinion come with, you know, when I, so I'll give you an example. I want to learn about dependent origination. Or I want to go deep and study dependent origination. I can get what Bhante G says. I can get what Bhante Analio says, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, uh, Ajahn Bramali says, Ajahn Brahm says. Uh, like <clears throat> each person kind of sees things in a different way. So what I tend to like to do is kind of get in, I have a group of about four or five monastics that I trust their opinion on, on the Dhamma, on the suttas. <clears throat> so when I examine something, I'm looking at that and I'm, and I'm you know, kind of seeing how they all say something different. Um, that's a, that's a, a positive, but that can also be a negative, because especially as a layperson, if you're going to say, well, well, Tanisaro Bhikkhu says this, Bhanteji says this, how, do I, how am I supposed to know? <clears throat> so, the only, the only way that you can really know is by putting it into practice and finding, seeing it work in your own experience. But G is not very controlling. There's no like, there's no like monk school here. It's like Bhante G basically gives you, a, you know, this is what a monk should be. Okay, now go, go do it. <coughs> that, that's what it is to be a monk here. Um, now, of course, Bhante is always there for if you need guidance and things like that. And if he sees you <coughs> doing something really wrong, he'll step in and be like, no, this is, you know, or he'll tell you. But he's, he's not very, he's not like trying to control you. Um, it's not uh, that kind of place here. I understand... And permanent and unsatisfactory, could you please explain what selfless, soullessness or selflessness means? That's a long one. <clears throat> Let me see if I can hold that off for now. Can you talk a little bit about the development of mudita as a meditative practice? It seems to be the Brahma Viharas that is least talked about. That's true. <laughs> but um, interestingly enough, you know, like so, so what I gave you the the you know the nor the the most common description of metta, which is you know one abides pervading the first quarter with the mind imbued with loving friendliness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, likewise the fifth. Not every time, but almost every time, right after that is one one uh, pervades one quarter with a mind of karuna, with compassion. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. One abides pervading one quarter with the mind of mudita. Likewise the second, likewise the third, you know, third likewise the fourth. <clears throat> one abides one quarter with the, um, a mind of equanimity. So the Buddha is telling you that you can practice all four of these in that same way. <clears throat> and so, you know, actually, you know, the wording that I gave you guys is what I developed in my own practice. 
And interestingly enough, I, I, that was years ago, but interestingly enough, only about a year ago, I found I, it clicked in my head that you can actually make those four lines into Brahma Vihara practice. <clears throat> the first one is, um, may all of us find happiness, okay? And rejoice in the happiness of others. That's mudita. May all of us find peace and abide with an equanimous mind. May all of us live in friendship with each other, abiding with a mind of metta. So there's one, two, three. And then the last one is, may all of us find release from suffering and develop compassion for the suffering of others. So even in that, you know, if you take those four lines, you can make that. And sometimes that's what I will do, is you can make that into uh, four Brahma Viharas. Because the Buddha does, you know, metta... <coughs> In general, I would say metta gets the most play because it is probably the most used in the suttas. Um, but the Brahma Viharas almost always, when I'm talking about practice, they go together. Just remember the purpose of the of mudita, the appreciative joy, is that you you know appreciate and that you. Are, are happy for the success and the happiness of others. <clears throat> because being um, not happy for the success and happiness of others is not going to lead you anywhere good. One of my friends was lying and backstabbing me. I spoke with him numerous times about this. He continues bad actions against me. I cut him off and stopped talking to him. Very good. Um, now he calls and texts me all the time. Am I being unkind not to answer his texts? I simply do not have him around, want to have him any, around anymore. Am I being unkind? It depends. Well, I would say in, in trying to, in not speaking and trying to avoid him, not necessarily. Um, if you were, you know, in the beginning, if you were like, go the hell away, you blappity blappity black, then that's unkind. Um, <clears throat> the Buddha is very clear and he says do not associate with fools. He says that if you cannot find a good friend, it is better than you be alone. Right? So you do not, he, he does not, Buddha does not want you to be with people who drag you down, who encourage you to do bad things, these kind of things. So I think that doing this, you know, ending this relationship was a, you know, a very good thing for yourself. You set a boundary, right? You know, setting a boundary is important. <clears throat> you know, if you can't, you know, maybe in the future they come and they apologize and they want to, you know, talk to you and they, you know, you can, you know, help them in that regard. But sometimes you have to save yourself. This is very, very important. Especially at this point, they, 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 he continues to, um, you know, continues to try to contact you. You can probably block the calls and texts. I don't know how to do that, but <clears throat> no, it's just you don't. You know, if you, you you're not going to be able to save everybody, and if somebody is causing you this problem, this harm is affecting your life. Cutting them off is, is fine. That's metta for yourself. And maybe it's metta for them too. Maybe they, that has to happen a couple times for them to realize, oh, well, maybe it's my fault. Maybe I'm doing something wrong that everybody is, is being this way towards me.
My meditation has been getting deeper and deeper each day. I now experience rushes of energy, raptures about five to 10 minutes after I start my meditations. After that, all becomes very quiet in my mind and body. Problem, I experience very high heat in my body during the rushes of energy. It's almost unbearable and I fear I might faint. Can the heat be avoided or channeled? That's interesting. Um, I've never actually heard of that. Other than like Tibetan monks have this, they do this thing where they generate heat. Um, they, you know, you see there's like Tibetan monks in the middle of snow generating heat and things like that. But other than that, I've never heard of you know, this, this kind of thing occurring. Um, you know, what I would say and what I've heard many, many, many much more senior monks than me say in, in regards to this is that this is an experience that's occurring during your meditation and to, you know, examine it and to investigate it and to, you know, really kind of not attach to it. Let it come and let it go. You say this is, it's almost unbearable. Well, at that point, examine your mind. Examine what that heat or that experience is doing to your mind. What is it doing to your body? You know, if that, that heat, how does that affect your mind? The general tone of your mind. <clears throat> that maybe aversion comes in or something like that. Watch that. Watch the thoughts that arise because of that. So that you're, you're applying the satipatthana. You're applying the establishments of mindfulness on your body going through this experience and when you do that it, it helps you because what you end up doing is you detach from that experience you detach from that you depersonalize it it's not my heat anymore that's causing me to suffer this is just an experience and I'm observing it so that's what I would suggest Is the belief in bodhisattvas such as Avakoleteshva outside the Theravada, uh, such as outside the Theravada practice? <coughs> oh, okay. Is belief in bodhisattva a distraction or helpful to practicing metta? Yeah, there's no bodhisattva or ideal or anything like that in Theravada. Um, <coughs> the only thing that is mentioned uh, and where the whole bodhisattva ideal comes from is that in the suttas, the Buddha, before he was an awakened being, he, he talked, he, um, when he describes himself, he calls himself Bodhisattva. So he, this was the Bodhisattva. This is somebody who was on the road to becoming a Buddha. And, uh, <clears throat> and so that's really the only, and a couple of times in the suttas where he even mentions anything like that. Um, so it's not really part of the Theravada practice. Um, it was something that was kind of really taken on with gusto with the early Mahayana adapters and it's become part of uh, Mahayana practice. <clears throat> Is belief in, bo in Bodhisattva a distraction or, a helpful, or helpful to practicing metta? One of the things that I, I tend to avoid when it comes to a lot of the other traditions is you know, answering a question like this, I don't know, I know a little, like my first retreat was actually at a Mahayana monastery, and so I had bhikshunis were teaching about the Lotus Sutra and, you know, uh, bodhisattvas and all these things, but I don't have a lot of knowledge um, regarding that, so, you know, there's a, a pretty good chance that anything I say 
relating to that could be wrong. Um, so I don't know. It, I think whether it's a distraction or helpful would probably be something that you would have to see in your own experience. It might be one or the other. Um, Is there a difference in the roles of monks and nuns in Theravada, or is the nun simply a female monk? Okay, <clears throat> this is a long topic. Very long and very complicated topic. Um, in terms of, let's see, the, in this topic, I'm not a huge fan of the English translations, monk and nun, because they're kind of, they come from the, uh, the Catholic tradition, right? And there's quite a difference in, in some ways between a nun and a priest or a monk and a priest, uh, uh, a monk and a nun. Um, in, the, uh, in the original and the old times when Buddha created what's called the fourfold assembly, this is the fourfold assembly is the uh, men and women monastics and men and women um, lay people. That's the community of, you know, they, it wasn't called Buddhists or Buddhism until about 150 years ago. Um, but so that was the community that he created. <clears throat> and uh, a bhikkhu and a bhikshuni, or bhikkhuni, um, are essentially the same. Now there are different rules, and there are, um, the bhikkhunis have a couple more rules than the bhikkhus. Mostly it's related to dress and comportment and things related to you know the, the different sex roles at the time uh, in India. And uh, so I would say essentially they're equal, which is why I don't like to call bhikkhunis nuns. Mostly I just, I'll just use the, the word. Um, or when I'm talking about, I'll say monastics. Monastics is, is, is accepted as a, what would you call it, a gender neutral term. Um, but uh, so, or for for bikunis, you can say aya, like you call us bante, you can say aya to the bikunis. Now, the interesting part of that is that a thousand years ago or so, the bikuni order died out. <coughs> uh, a little while before that, actually, almost the whole monastic order died out. It was, Sri Lanka was very, very important in, revi in, in keeping alive the, the suttas and, and the monastic lineage. <coughs> so there's been times due to wars and genocides and whatever throughout the thousands of years that Buddhism has existed that um, you know, it's been very close. And that's one of the reasons why it was originally written down was because there was a time in Sri Lanka when there wasn't enough, uh, you know, bhikkhus or bhikkhunis to keep the, the thing going. So they had to start writing it down on palm leaves. When I listen to your talks, I get a great sense of soothing honesty and your delivery is so humble and light-hearted. Oh, this is not a question. Uh, that... Okay. Oh, here's the question. Uh, 
While meditating, what is a good suggestion for contemplating the hindrance of dullness? Oh, <clears throat> I would say that um, what you would call uh, tinamida, that's what Bhante was talking about, sleepiness and drowsiness or sloth and torpor, however you describe it, that's probably one of the hardest ones. Usually what happens is in the beginning as you're meditating or beginner meditator, the, the, the thing that's most prominent is the monkey mind, the mind ch 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 chatting on and on and on. But once you get past that, that's when the real danger begins. <laughs> because this is when you fall into the abyss of sloth and torpor. And <clears throat> what I found to, to be the case is that um, your mind, before you get to that point in your meditation, the average person, when their mind is that quiet and calm, they're about to fall asleep. It's right before you go to bed. So now once you're sitting there and you're trying to be nice, alert, and awake and practicing meditation, you get to that point where well, your mind's like, oh, okay, it's time to go to bed. And you start like <clears throat> gradually, slowly getting more tired. And uh, the way I, the way I <clears throat> envisioned it one time is like falling into a black hole or like a whirlpool. It's like you just slowly begin to go down and then pff, you're asleep <clears throat> and so what I try to do is try to <clears throat> watch you know while I'm observing my mind I try to f look at the characteristics that I have observed and noticing when I'm starting that path and the earlier I see that the more the easier it is for me to apply various techniques to try to to stop that only one time have I ever actually like been right on the brink of right before I'm about to fall down and I watched that and I was able to get out of it. Most of the time if I'm down that point, it's already too late. I'm going to pass out. <clears throat> so the Buddha actually gives, there's a funny story um, of Mahamogalana. I think that's Mahamogalana. Um, or it could be that one. One's Sariputta, one's Mahamogalana. But um, the Mahamogalana is one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. <clears throat> he, and so he, there's a story of him before he was an awakened being and he was meditating and he's like... And the Buddha comes up and the Buddha says, Mahamogalana, are you sleeping? <clears throat> and he says, yes, Bhante, I'm, <clears throat> I'm nodding off. <clears throat> and so the Buddha gave him a variety of different techniques of things to try to um so the first thing is like to you know rub your eyes or to pinch your ears really hard <clears throat> um the, another thing is to just open your eyes for a time another thing is to um to recite a, a line of the the suttas or something or chanting that you've rem, you know you've memorized um out loud or in a, when you're in other people you do it in your mind um, another thing is to stand up for a time if you need to, or go wash, you know, put wash your your head with some water. Um, another thing is to do walking meditation, and then the last thing, as I was kind of explaining about before, the very very last resort that th basically means you failed um, because you got you could nothing else worked. But the very very last resort is to go take a nap. So. <clears throat> Actually, I, I took a <clears throat> an hour nap before the Dhamma talk 
And then, <clears throat> because I was feeling tired, I tried to sleep for a half hour before this too, but I couldn't fall asleep. So taking a nap is important. So if you have, uh, you know, obviously with balance, you don't want to sleep too much. Bhante, you said you've never had a blissful retreat. Can you talk a little about, about what to take away from a retreat in general? <coughs> Some teachers like Ajahn Brahm really encourage pursuing blissful experiences in meditation. I have had, I had one retreat that was half blissful. My last retreat before I came here was the jhana retreat. And I was pretty blissed out the first half. But then right in the middle, I ended up having a nervous, like, anxiety breakdown. <clears throat> and it wasn't because of my meditation. It was because I was starting to realize actually what I had to give up to come here and become a monastic. So I was just going in between, let's see, oh my God. Like, you know, it was just like all of a sudden it like hit me like a ton of bricks. So I had a little bit of a breakdown. And then the rest of the retreat was pretty rough. But that first half of the retreat was pretty, everything was going pretty well, nice and, and blissful. Um, <clears throat> What I mean by this is that, the, you know, there's, I'm also not exactly the best when it comes to, you know, sitting meditation and following your breath and, and really, I, I can't just like get into this and I'm going to just bliss out for like an hour. Um, I've never really had, I've struggled with that a lot. So that could also be part of why I say uh, the retreat is struggling. <clears throat> I mean, if you can sit for long hours in, in, in deep meditation and, and not have any physical uh, issues, then retreats are going to be great for you. <laughs> but for the rest of us, they're tough. <clears throat> but they've always been insightful. Like that's, that's the thing. I've never had a retreat that wasn't amazingly insightful or that I didn't come away from it, you know, changed in some way or another. Um, so that's what I would say, you know. Oh, and yes, Ajahn Brahm really does encourage pursuing bliss. Um, <clears throat> some people are not big fans of that, actually. Uh, but I, I see where he's coming from, and when he talks about it, <clears throat> I was lucky enough to spend two days with him last June. Uh, he came to New York, and uh, I was able to spend a lot of time, <clears throat> in mostly private, like on the subway and things like that. Um, talking to him about monastic stuff. It was a really good experience. But I watched him do it like a two-hour-long Dhamma talk, a uh, uh, jhana talk, and he never mentioned once first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. <clears throat> it was talking about bliss and peace and contentment and tranquility and all that. And that's because you, you have to actually subdue the hindrances to even get into jhana. <clears throat> my jhana retreat here that I took with Bhante G, it was nine days. The first five days were all hindrances. It was just about the hindrances. You didn't even hear word one about jhana until you were past halfway into the retreat. It's the insight that's the most important thing to take away from the retreat. And that insight doesn't usually come easy. You have to go through the struggles and the suffering. <clears throat> That's why, you know, I would say that most people who find their way to a monastery, most people who find their way to Buddhism, have had some kind of dukkha in their life, one way or the other. 
And then most people, that's why they say the people, the, the, the beings in the heaven realms, like most of the devas, they don't care at all about, you know, at all about uh, Dhamma because they're blissing out there. There's heaven. There's like 72 dub-footed nymphs for everybody and all kinds of wacky things. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of, like, I mean, like, they're just like totally blissed out. Like, it's, it's all pleasure all the time. So they don't care about Dhamma. Dukkha, what the heck is that? Right, but then when they get reborn and they go down, they're like, oh, okay, Duca. <laughs> I've been catching and releasing the ants in my home until I learned that they were carpenter ants. They may be eating my home. I believe the Buddha would say I still shouldn't kill them, but you know. <laughs> this is a tough one. This is a very tough one, and it usually shows up regarding the precepts, right? Listen, I've not only in my job, but in, in my own life, because of uh, a cat coming in and bringing it in, I know what it is to have a house full of fleas and fleas jumping on everybody. I've been in houses with cockroach infestations and, and lice and all these kind of things. <clears throat> That's where it gets really, really hard, right? You, <clears throat> you can catch and release a, a spider or something big that's a one-off thing that's gonna you know go away but something like these carpenter ants <clears throat> when I moved into that kuti over there every day I would have these these ants the, the ants with wings there's that's the first this stage it, the whole it would be like the I don't know what some one of those movies where you see just like tons of flies all over like some horror movie <clears throat> and it would be just tons of these flies and I would start taking and they'd all be at, most of them would be at the window like yearning to like get out I'm like come on I want to go I want to be free and all these things and so I tried to like you know save some of them but then the next day there would just be more and more and more and then I and then all of a sudden, the queen carpenter ant came out and planted. I'm like, oh, okay, it's one of these. Okay, so if I let the queen out, then there won't be any more born. So I captured the queen, and I let her out. <clears throat> and then the next day, there were more. <laughs> and then two days, three days, four days, and then there was another queen. And so I got the queen, and I got her out, and then they were gone. They weren't there anymore. They, they stopped because it really felt bad, because it was like every day it was like sorry. you were just watching it, because there would just be a bunch of newborn carpenter ants, and then by the end of the day they would be dead on the floor. And then the next morning there would be more, and then they'd be dead on the floor. Um, so it's really, you know, it's very, very hard, especially you have a, a house and you have children to protect and all these kind of things. It's very hard to try to balance the, the not killing with, okay, we can't live with a house full of, of lice and, and bed bugs and things and you know I, I can obviously I can't at all encourage any kind of killing as a Buddhist monk um, but the precepts are never black and white it's all gray and when you have the when you have responsibilities that you take on in your life you're also taking on karma you're also taking on like you know I mean I I don't have a family to protect, so I won't have to worry about that. Now, I might have to pr protect the monastery in some way or something like that. But, you know, each time, you can never be perfect either, right? You know, I mean, if you end up, you know, there, there's no, as far as I know, there's no non-lethal way to, to rid your house of fleas and, you know, little things like that. And ants, the way you worry, the way you do the ants is really try to, like what we do here is like, 
anything like candies or sugars or whatever, we really try to like, you know, put it in like containers, closed containers, avoid spills and all that kind of stuff. If you can do the best that you can to do so, you know, to avoid the animal, hurting the animals, then, um, then you have to make a choice, you know. When visual images <clears throat> arise during meditation, is this the same as when thoughts are arising? Keeping Keep visual images or get rid of them. Is it? Yeah. Don't get rid of them. You're not, you don't want to push things away, nor do you want to attach to them. Whatever arises in your practice, you, you, know, you keep following your breath. And if it distracts you from the breath, okay, you acknowledge, I've been distracted. Then you let go and come back to the breath. And by let go, what I mean is you don't want to try to push something away, nor do you want to get wrapped up in it. You don't want to get attached to it either. So you just practice, okay, I've been taken away, I come back. And when you, when you don't get wrapped up and attached to an experience that's happening, <clears throat> you'll notice that it'll just come and go. Things just come and go in your, in, in your awareness. As long as you're, if you're following your breath, it's like a stream of aware, a stream of whatever coming by you, stream of thoughts, stream of images, stream of whatever it is. It, it'll just keep going, and you know you're just totally focused and totally content to just be with your breath, and it doesn't distract you anymore. So you don't want to push it away, nor do you want to get attached to it. Acknowledge and then return. While doing metta, <clears throat> could other feelings arise, like restless, restlessness, nostalgia? Could we have greed for the experience of a bliss that is metta brings? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like I was saying before, and I was blissed out on metta for quite a long time, and when it went away, I was like, oh man, did I do something wrong? What's going on? All these kind of things. Um, so th that's the that's attachment, right? You, that's not recognizing that metta is impermanent, right? So um, you know it's it's a pleasant experience. It's a pleasant experience of the mind. So of course, yes, you can have greed for it. And sure, all kinds of experiences can you know arise when you are practicing metta. If you can let them go and continue to practice the metta, then continue to do so. No question there. Okay, what is the Theravada community's view on psychopharmaceutical drugs? <clears throat> Antidepressants, anti-anxiety, etc. <clears throat> How do these chemicals interplay with 
insight meditation, if at all. Okay. Um, I don't know if there's a Theravada community's view, like there's no grand view um, regarding this. Um, you know, part of, for the monastics, part of one of the requisites that we receive is medicines. Oh, medicines as, you know, needed for the body and for the mind is, is an important and, and is a accepted thing. Um, like even technically, how did Bhante say it? Marijuana? Marijuana? <laughs> I mean, even technically marijuana or, or opiates or something that's used in a medical way, yeah, you can use it. You can also use opiates and marijuana in a non-medical way because you want to become heedless, right? Um, so in that regard, if these things, if you're using something for medicine to, to allow you to function in a, in a more, you know, in a, have a good baseline to be able to function, then that's good. Then, you know, continue to use them. Um, I don't know how the, the chemicals would interplay with the insight meditation per se. Um, <clears throat> What uh, we know, anything that's happening to you, you can examine that. You can investigate it. You can know your mind. What is your mind like without these drugs? What is your mind like with these drugs? What are the differences? You know, examine these things. One thing I'll never say is don't take the drugs, just do meditation. And there are people who have tried to get me to tell them that. That's not a good thing. Um, you know, meditation is not medicine per se. You know, the, so if you need to take these kind of things to help you and to have therapeutic services and all that, that's good. You can find somebody who has um, interdisciplinary experience with, like, you know, the drugs and psycho and, and therapeutic interventions and also meditation. That's very, very common these days. We get therapists here all the time, people coming to practice and learn meditation so that they can, you know, implement things with their own uh, clients. <laughs> okay, this is, I wouldn't read this, but this is perfect, so I have to read this. You radiate metta limitless goodwill in your every word and actions. I don't know about your thoughts. That's right, you don't know about my thoughts. <laughs> Yes, no, just like, you know, there's, there's plenty of non-metta in my thoughts too, um, for sure, yeah. Uh, what is the secret of my practice? Never giving up. That's the secret. That's, that's the secret of my practice. I just, you don't give up. You just keep practicing, making, making it a part of who you are. When you do that, then it's, it, you know, then you live it. And, of course, living it means that it's not always going to be, you know, you're not always going to be the, an avatar of metta, right? And sometimes you can have compassion for yourself that you don't, you know, you don't have to be an avatar of metta today. Maybe you just want to be an avatar of sitting there sick and, you know, trying to heal yourself. So that's fine. Bonte, idiot metta. Oh, that's interesting. Idiot metta. <laughs> uh,
Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I went for a short walk after your break in the forest, and I saw two beautiful birds. Those two birds suddenly had a, a fight or a flirt date. Uh, one of the birds did not want to play, and the other bird continued to follow. I stood there and set method to all, all birds around and bugs too. Good job. <coughs> it worked, Bonte. The other bird stopped and walked across the other side of the road. I'm amazed. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Hey. Either you stopped them from fighting, or you stopped them from procreating. <coughs> Uh, Bhante, you mentioned the practice of sending metta to inanimate objects. Science has proven that the words we speak and the frequencies we emanate, I guess that is emanate, yeah, do change the water structure at least. Interesting. It, so, it sounds, seems strange in light of this, that trees and plants are not included in metta practice. I remember watching, you ever, remember that show Mythbusters? I remember them like trying to see if like they, they would play like they had plants on one end and they were playing classical music and then they had plants on the other and they were playing like Metallica and things like that <laughs> to try to like you know see the the differences in the plants to you know if they can understand and, and it affects them and things like that. Uh, trees and plants are considered what's called one faculty life. They are considered life and by one faculty it's just like one I believe the one faculty is feeling, I'm pretty sure. That's, it's not really very common. You can't really find that in the suttas, but you find that in, the, in the, the monk's rules. Because one of our rules is that we can't go and, like, I can't mow the lawn. I can't dig the earth and all these kind of things. And that mostly stems from at the time of the Buddha, um, there were groups like the Jains and things like that where they, you didn't touch any of that, grass and plants and trees and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so usually what happened, which happens a lot in the, the rules of the, for the monks and the, and the, the monastics rules, um, is that uh, you'll see that the monks and, or the, the bhikkhus or the bhikkhunis do something and then the, the, the people get really angry and they say, how could they do this? And the Buddha's like, okay, we got to make a rule that, you know, don't, uh, you can't go mowing the lawns or, you know, chopping trees and all that kind of stuff. And also one of the reasons for trees is that like devas and beings that live in the trees. So you don't want to deprive, <coughs> deprive the beings of their home. So that's basically the, the plants uh, regarding into Buddhism. Even though they are living beings, uh, they provide oxygen. Da, 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 fur, further to this, is the earth itself a being? I don't know. Since during the Buddha's enlightenment, process he touched the earth as a witness that's interesting that that's what that is that's the earth witnessing posture um, <clears throat> and that's something that I've always felt to be very powerful actually but I, I don't necessarily know if uh, I don't think in Buddhism we what would you call that anima something like that I don't know if you we know that uh, you know we would understand that the earth itself is a living being Although you could certainly look at it that way with all the systems and all the, you know, how everything is all so interdependent and all that. You can look at it that way. Uh, Bhante S. yesterday mentioned clinging to immaterial world and material world. Can you elaborate on immaterial world? 
what are uh, and <clears throat> so immaterial world is like the stuff like the uh, the deva realms the brahma realms the hell realms that's all immaterial um, there's even a way that you that you can reboot be reborn where it's just simply mind you're just this like mind floating somewhere for like 80,000 eons and things like that it's quite interesting that's that's um if you practice like the infinite infinity uh, of nothingness infinity of uh infinite consciousness all that kind of stuff you practice those then that's that's the possibility of uh something that you can be reborn as Regarding your story in reference to Ajahn Chah, and if you already knew this, da -da -da -da. oh, the the, <coughs> the uh, biography of Ajahn Chah, yes, that's available. I have it in PDF. And yes, Jayasaro, uh, Ajahn Jayasaro, and I share the same name. Um, Jayasaro and Jayasara are the same name. It's just the the declension of. Uh, his is the nominative or vocative declension. Mine's the nominative declension. He's also been a monk as long. I'm 40, and he's been a monk as a year longer than I've been alive. So he's been a monk for a long time. Yeah. <clears throat> Buddha was supposed to have a, sh a shaven head, but why do all the Buddha statues have hair? It beats me. Honestly, I want, a sh I want a Buddha statue. Well, I'm not a huge fan of the Buddha statues in general, but if I, wa I had one, I want a bald-headed Buddha, for sure. I've actually asked people to draw me a Buddha with a, with a bald head. They don't want to do it. But <laughs> that's, that's tradition. It's tradition, and it comes from you know, various stories. Um, there's various what they call uh, sign, 32 signs of the great man in there and that kind of stuff um, but yeah the Buddha's head was bald um, there's wonderful some of my favorite suttas are like there's a king goes at, at, among all the monks and he can't find the Buddha because it's all a bunch of bald headed guys just hanging out being peaceful in the woods it's, Where, where's the Buddha <coughs> so yeah the pine cone on top of the Buddha's head I think maybe this is because they know there, there's this awesome picture of, of, a, of a squirrel in front of the Buddha like that and it says, can I have your pine cone hat? <laughs> so, uh, Did Buddha ever teach about third eye or, or chakras? No, he didn't teach any of that. Um, and I'm not too familiar with the whole pineal gland thing, so sorry about that. Much of what you have said spring from metta practice affirms how we can serve others and serve the good in the world, society. I have had the impression that a forced, monast forced monasticism was about abandoning worldly things and ways, about seclusion and solitude in lonely places, 
about focusing inwardly and not outwardly, keeping eyes cast downward and keeping apart from lay people, intimate with none in the village. There seems to be a tone of not being friendly, not saying thank you on alms rounds, etc. And the Buddha seems to never smile or laugh in the suttas. I don't know if it ever says that he laughs, but he's pretty funny. I mean, you have to kind of really get to get into the suttas to see where the funny is, and sometimes it could be kind of like the like that dry British humor kind of kind of funny. But there's a lot of humor in the suttas, actually. Um, how can we make sense of this and the practice of separate, separate separateness and solitude, like is seen in the Thai forest tradition, and a service type orientation. <clears throat> Bhavana is definitely pretty different. I mean, there's lots of forest monasteries in, in the country, but as far as I know, there's only like one other like Bhavana. Because most of those forest monasteries, when you go there, you know that you're entering their world. Like you are going and living amongst them for whatever, a week. Um, they don't have retreats. They don't do any of this kind of stuff. Um, Bhavana is different because we are a retreat center as well as, as a monastery. And if you talk to Samanar Karuna and some of the monks uh, enough, you'll see there's lots of, man, I wish I had more time to just be by myself. <laughs> um, but uh, unfortunately, Bhavana's not like that. This is, we are a place where people come visit us, you know, not every day, but throughout the week, on the weekends, and, and we have retreats and all these kind of things. So we're kind of, in, in some ways, Bhavana is like halfway in both worlds. Like we're out in the woods and we have our seclusion, but we also have people visiting us like it's a city monastery all the time too. Um, but one thing I will say though is that <clears throat> There's a, a pretty big misconception in terms of monastic seclusion. Um, you know, like you'll see, it, mostly you'll see it in like Tibetan Buddhism and, and, and Mahayana and Zen. You'll see like, this person has been living as a hermit for 40 years and all these kind of things. That doesn't really exist much in Theravada. And the reason being is because that's not how the Buddha set it up initially for monks to be. The Buddha, I told you already about the fourfold assembly. The Buddha set it up so that even the most ascetic, people-hating, forest-loving monk had to once a day go into a village and you know, present his bowl and you know, accept food from people and also teach Dhamma. Even one of my, my favorite disciple of the Buddha is Mahakasapa. He's like the grumpy old man of, of the disciples. And he's, the, he's foremost in asceticism foremost in this but he had disciples and he also had to go into town every day and all these kind of things as well so <clears throat> the buddha set it up so that we the the laity and the and the monastics depend on each other and it's often described as um laity provide food for the for the body and the monastics provide food for the mind or food for freedom right so but there is of course one of the dangers, and I think Bhante Sila aptly spoke of it, is that if you get too wrapped up in being available for everybody else, you don't have time for yourself, for your own practice. 
So that's one of the things that I've, watching Bhante G, watching Bhante Sila, is like in my own life, it's very, very tempting. Look, look at it's 8.12. I told you guys I'd stop at 8, right? I'm still here answering questions. It's very, very tempting to just, you know, because there's limitless beings. There's limitless amount of people who are going to be here, right? Who are going to come and who are going to ask questions. And you have to find a balance, just like you guys do, just like in lay life. You have to find a balance, right? So... Well, that's a thank you. Well, I mean, since I'm at the end almost, I might as well finish. <laughs> a lot of times what happens is when I, and I think I get, I get energy from you guys. I get energy from people, um, which is the opposite of when I'm meditating. When I'm meditating, I like to meditate alone. I only meditate, well, I haven't had any the chance to meditate much at all this retreat, unfortunately. But um, when I usually meditate, I like to meditate by myself in the woods. Um, I don't get like the, some people say they get this like energy of meditating with other people. I don't really get that. But as a monk here, I have to be, you know, like a role model. And I have to, you know, we have to be up here being kind of like um, uh, an encouragement for you guys to meditate. And I apologize that you've barely had any encouragement to meditate this retreat. <laughs> I really apologize for that. I feel bad for that. But... Um, if a, pass, if a cancer patient is uh, asking to assist in medical suicide and be released from suffering, is this killing too? Yes. Yeah. Um, the, somebody asked Bhante Sila about abortion. Well, in the monk's rules, under the first, uh, no, so the third rule <clears throat> is not to kill human beings. And it specifically states that if you do, if you encourage somebody to have an abortion or if you encourage somebody to to do euthanasia and they do it, you're not a monk anymore. You're done. That's one of the Parajika rules. That's one of the, the, the four biggest rules there is. So, um, you know, you're never going to see a monk encourage you guys to do either of those. Um, but yeah, so it would be, even though it's a suicide, even though, you know, you're assisting it, it's considered killing. Yeah. Um, now, as opposed to if that is the most compassionate thing to do or not? You know, I don't know. But I've never met many Buddhists that are okay with, you know, finishing off people for compassion. So, living in a big city, it's tough not to kill pests in the apartment. We talked about this co-ops and condos. Do not approve apartment zoo. That's also tough because you could have a wonderful, clean apartment and everybody else around you is all dirty and they got cockroaches and all these kind of things. I remember I had a client like that, that they, were, they lived in a place where it was just houses, you know, packed in, right? There was no space. And, you know, they would always try to clean and but the cockroaches would come in through the wall from the other ones and things like that. So... Uh, you mentioned that you follow science. Are there any books in particular that you might recommend discuss leading scientific discoveries and how they intersect with Buddhism, Buddhist ideology? You're not going to find that, per se. Um, what I will suggest is there's a, a wonderful book. What, in, in terms of 
one of the things that I really enjoy and I think that has helped me kind of view things well is evolutionary psychology, right? And there's this professor, is Professor Robert Wright. He just released a book. It's called Why Buddhism is True. Um, this is the companion book to a course that I highly suggest everybody take. You can go on Coursera, I think it's .com, and um, you can go and he, he, he's a, a professor at Princeton and a couple other places and he teaches, it's called Buddhism and Modern Psychology. It's a, I took it 2013, 2012, it's free, it's online, you can just go. And it was, it's wonderful, it's, a, it's an amazing kind of blend of Buddhism and, and psychology and you know, he delves into like our ancient ancestry and why, we, why our minds do things the way they do. Like for instance, you're walking down a path and you see something coiled in, in the road and the path and instantly you think it's a snake. Right? But then you put a flashlight on and, okay, it's a, a rope. Well, evolutionarily, evolution and natural selection wants you to survive. It doesn't care if you think what it is. It's always going to be a snake so you can survive. Right? So you can see that. And then that's, that really helps you understand why, you're, the, why this human being does what it does, that it has the drives that it has why that natural selection has bred you not for happiness at all. It doesn't care that you're happy. It just cares that you survive long enough to procreate. Um, so it's really fascinating. So I highly suggest that checking out that book, Why Buddhism is True. I work in a very cutthroat environment. I have tried to practice appreciative joy, but have looks like jailed, but I think it's failed. I have failed many times. <clears throat> I guess because it's not very sincere. They are just words. Please advise how to succeed at this practice when you are also trying to succeed in comprehend in I guess competition when competition is fierce. Um, yeah, that's that's a tough situation, but what I would say is this because we can get too wrapped up in all the other people and what they're doing, right? And they feel, even I like if like, you know, if like Karuna like, is like, I'm working on an essay, I feel bad. Like, oh man, maybe I should be working on an essay. Like these kind of things, right? So it's just like that mindset that's like, you know, you don't want to get left back or you, or you want to get the, the best or this is, what I would suggest is this. What I would suggest is don't compare yourself. Don't look at the other people per se. Look at yourself from yesterday and work on yourself. Just say, okay, how can I be better at this job? What can I do? You know, it, it, that doesn't involve backstabbing my, my coworkers or trying to undermine my coworkers with my boss or anything like that. Because people are going to do that, right? People are going to use, when it comes to competition, you know, um, if it's allowed, they're going to use whatever way possible that they can do. Um, and so what I'm suggesting is, you know, you might not end up being the top in the company. You might not end up being the mo having the most money. But if you do this in a more moral way, looking at your watch, trying to improve yourself and being better than you were yesterday, then at the very least, you don't have to, you know, you can maintain that peace of mind. And that, then that can be very easy. 
you don't even have to have mudita for these people. Then you can have compassion for them because they're really going at it and they're killing themselves and they're and they're being doing unskillful things and hurting other people and all that. Then you have compassion for them. So just don't let it turn into you know you feeling that you're better than them either. That's another. That's always a danger. Always a danger. How do you become a Buddhist monk? I spoke about that already. How do you say livelihood, way of living? It's ajivo. Jiva is like is related to living, so it's ajivo. A J A G no A J I V O. Okay, that's just a thank you. And then the last one, talking about uh, not self. You got a couple hours? <laughs> so it's, um, this is one of those things that I, I have to um, premise by saying you can think about it all the time. It's not going to help you. It's going to drive you nuts. Right? There's, there's things that the Buddha says that if you were to just continue to intellectually try to figure them out that it would make your head explode so anatta or not self is one of those and it's one of those things that you have to see within your own experience so the three characteristics of existence the first thing is usually it's translated as impermanence but i like the other translation which is called not stable or unstable so everything is unstable there's not one thing that you can hold on to and grasp and that is, you can have a refuge with and depend on in life <clears throat> your spouse your body your car whatever it is it will change it will break down it will go away <clears throat> so that's impermanence and when we when we do attach to something that's impermanent and we do expect it to to be that rock for us and it falls through our fingers and it changes we've created our own suffering so that's dukkha and so whatever is impermanent and unsatisfactory or dukkha the buddha also says can't be yourself it can't be because you, you having some kind of permanent soul or permanent self assumes some kind of mastery over it and the buddha says can you say um you know to this body or to this self don't grow old don't get sick you know so you can you can do things like you can move your body and you can will you know do all kinds of things like that but you can't tell your body don't get old don't get sick don't die right that's a, you have limited ability limited power to control that and so to the buddha that that's not that's something that you can't possibly take as some kind of permanent stable self or permanent stable soul the, uh, the terms are also important to understand. Um, usually anything that has an A in front of it um, uh, can, is what's called the, the negative. Or, so anatta is a or anatta. So atta is the Pali version of what you would call the Atman in, Sans in Sanskrit. 
that and, and that is the belief that there's this and they literally describe it as this like little being like this little person that is essentially your soul is who you are and that being comes into the body and animates it and it leaves when the body dies or when you go to sleep and so the ultimate goal of that Brahmanic tradition is you know and also a part of Hinduism today is to bring that is to gradually reunite that Atman with Brahma the creator God right so the Buddha comes in and he says oh you're talking about Atman or Atta well let me tell you Anatta <laughs> there is no permanent soul there's no permanent self there's nothing there so he comes in and basically tells the the people at the time this is he flips it around and he says, there's nothing that you can see. There's nothing that you can look at. What can you see in your own experience that you can say is self? And so the Buddha says, when you are looking at these five aggregates, when you're looking at your mind and your body and all that, when you're looking at that with vipassana, you see that whatever you can examine, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. That, when you see that, you are seeing with Vipassana. You're seeing clearly. You're seeing things as they really are. <clears throat> and it's been my experience that this is not something that is like a eureka moment. This is not something that's like one day you have a self and the next day, oh, whoa, you know, I don't have a self anymore. This is great. It starts, it's slow and gradual and you start to have things happen to you. So you start to examine things, like examining your thoughts and seeing that. And you start to notice that what you thought was yours, you're not so sure about anymore. And then when you start to realize, once you start doing that, once you, that starts happening, that thought arises. And you're like, I don't have to accept this thought anymore. In the past, I just would have went on autopilot. I would have just went with it. It's me. It's just a thought. It's just arising. I don't, it's giving me a suggestion, whatever. I don't have to accept it. And so that's the beginning of understanding that there's, you can't find this permanent self. You can't find this, you know, looking at it and saying, oh, this is mine. This is me, you know. Um, and so you start to have those experiences and it's a I, I hesitate to use this word for lack of a better one especially because this is also um, this word is also used to describe a, a, a mental um, a, a mental condition as well and that's depersonalization it's like you literally it, you depersonalize from your experience this is not this body is not mine it just these thoughts that arise are not mine, and I was like, I don't, uh, I don't want to, um, I want to take care of this body because this body allows me to, you know, to practice the Dhamma, but I don't need to indulge in it or I don't need to, you know, these kind of things. So that's what not self is. It's it's beginning the process of seeing that there is no permanent CEO. As a matter of fact, there's in, in, if you get into modern psychology and evolutionary psychology, you'll start to see the, um, the modular view of the mind. 
which the modular view of the mind is a, is a type of, a, is something that's gaining ground in psychology. And it, basically it says that there's no CEO. It's just modules. It's just, you know, different parts of the mind that are kind of vying for your attention at different times. There's no controller of that. And to be honest, with you, at least in my experience, I've found that to be pretty accurate. Um, and again, I'm not an advanced being and I'm not, I can't say that I fully understand or I fully abide in anatta all the time. Believe me, that's not the case. But um, in my experience, that's kind of been how it is. Like, you know, we, we, there's two words that are great. One is manyamano and the other is papancha. Manyamano means, is the word for how we conceive and we create. Like we create this, this being I am Bhante J and I like this and I dislike that and this is what I listen to and this all these things and we add these attributes. It's like if you're a video gamer, it's like you're creating a character, right? <clears throat> so we add this and we build up. That's called papancha. That's called propagating. So we keep propagating this character. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite things about Manyamano, if you look it up in, in the Pali Dictionary, is that it says conceiving, etc. But then after it says imagination. So it's essentially we are building, we are imagining this permanent being that has these characteristics and these attributes. And you could probably say, well, you know, if you're a being that's born into the world with greed, hatred, and delusion, well, that's the natural thing that you're going to assume. Because you're not being, you can't see things the right way. So you're just going to assume, okay, well, I have this self, and I like this self, and I like this self is strong, and this self is, you know, can do lots of cool things, and this self is better than other selves, and all these kind of things, right? So with that being said, I think uh, we're going to call it a night, because it's 8.30. I think uh, I got energy from you guys, but as soon as this is over, I'm going to crash pretty hard. <laughs> That's usually what happens. It's like adrenaline. It's like you get lots of energy while you're doing it, and then after, it's just whoo. All right, friends. Well, that is the, well, not quite the end of the retreat, but that's the end of Dhamma Talks and Q&As. So continue with your practice. You can take a break and come back to meditate. Yeah, oh, uh, open the